Sarge, you got something playing in the background. And welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Eurofolk Radio Network. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It is Thursday, December 30th, 2021, and uh, we're going to jump right to our guests, Mike Gaddy, and I believe we have Dale with us too, right? Is that correct, Mike? That is correct. Dale should be here. Dale, are you hearing us okay? Loud and clear, Mike. Glad to be here. Hot diggity All dog. Right. Finally get a chance you, to meet buddy. the infamous Dale. Well, Sarge, I'll, uh, I'll call you Sarge, and I'll, and I'll uh, try to distinguish between you and the Sergeant Major. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> All righty. So we're going to be talking about the little amendment that could today, right? Uh, that is true. That's kind of the offshoot of the uh, uh, program that I kind of put together in my head, Jim. Sounds good. Well, I'll let you get started on it since you know what you're doing. <laughs> well, Jim uh, and Dale, one of the things, you know, and I, I mentioned this to Dale earlier in the week, I do not remember at what stage of my education that I learned that the Bill of Rights was not a part of the Constitution. That, in fact, the uh, first uh, U.S. Congress uh, convened without a Bill of Rights, and they were well into, well, the entire first Congress did not operate under a Bill of Rights or the restriction of a Bill of Rights. And I, I don't think most people actually know that, that the Bill of Rights did not come on for almost two years after the first Congress convened. And then the Bill of Rights is such an interesting such an interesting study, um, Jim and Dale. I have started a book, and I'm, uh, you know, fairly well into it. And, of course, Jim, I, I told you earlier, the title of my book will be A Bill of Rights or a Bill of Goods. Mm -hmm. And I am just amazed at the lack of knowledge when you talk to people, because so many people look to this Bill of Rights as, you know, what the people own. And this belongs to the people. The Constitution belongs to the government. The Bill of Rights belongs to the people. I've had a multitude of people tell me that over the years. But when you really get to looking into the Bill of Rights, it becomes a most interesting subject. And the fact that a Bill of Rights was uh, a motion for a Bill of Rights was made by George Mason at the Constitutional Convention and was actually seconded by Elbridge Gerry. And then a vote came up and the Bill of Rights was voted out of the Constitution unanimously by state. And I think that's something we overlook, Jim, in the fact that no one, uh, in, no majority at the Constitutional Convention wanted a Bill of Rights included in the Constitution. To me, that is terribly revealing. Yeah. And they wanted the people to have no rights. Now, they, they had to flit around that in one way or another. And that becomes what is really, uh, really interesting. And, you know, of course, uh, Patrick Henry fights uh, throughout the Virginia Ratification Convention against ratification. 
he doesn't want the Constitution at all, and he fights against it. Unfortunately, he lost by a very narrow margin, and Virginia ratified the Constitution, and of course, uh, New Hampshire had already ratified, so they had the nine. Virginia was 10, and then the uh, convention was held in New York for the New York ratification, which was extremely contentious. And especially so when we think of New York today, to think that the Anti-Federalists carried such weight in in the New York Ratification Convention. But the New York Ratification Convention just really created something that most people are totally unaware of. And that's the fact that the New York legislators, the people who had met to ratify the Constitution, not all legislators, it's just the ratification convention, that met in New York to ratify the Constitution created what was called a circular letter. So the uh, ratification convention in New York sent a circular letter to the governors of every state proposing a brand new a brand new convention just to create a bill of rights well guys this scared the bejesus out of the federalists who had just gotten their constitution ratified a second constitutional convention just uh they they felt like oh my gosh everything we've gotten done everything that we did in secret everything that we're about to pull over on these people they could turn the whole apple cart upside down And, of course, uh, James Madison had had to promise the people in Virginia a Bill of Rights. Number one, he had had to promise the people a Bill of Rights to get elected in Virginia to the first U.S. Congress as as a member of the House of Representatives. Patrick Henry had fought tooth and nail to keep James Madison from being one of the first senators, and he had succeeded. But then he was fighting to keep James Madison out of the Congress altogether. Unfortunately, James Madison won a narrow victory over James Monroe. If you uh, trivia folks out there, that's the only uh, election in U.S. history where two future presidents ran against each other. So Madison realizes that he is... Uh, in, in a real pinch, and he had promised the people of Virginia a Bill of Rights if, he, if they would ratify the Constitution. So the Constitution had been ratified and was going into effect, but the next great question before the country was the spate of amendments which the Federalists had reluctantly agreed to recommend at the state conventions. And they had only agreed to this because they felt like the Constitution would never have been ratified either in Virginia or New York. And if it hadn't been ratified in Virginia, it it was pretty well done. That's why Patrick Henry said, I don't care if 12 states ratify this Constitution. Virginia should stay out of it. Virginia had the population. Virginia had the wealth. Virginia, at that time, a, a country without Virginia in it, course you know you've got george washington there you've got all of these other things so it was a really uh critical issue so would they as madison and the other federalists wanted be quietly forgotten this plea madison didn't want a bill of rights but he had to promise it 
Okay, so the Anti-Federalists, particularly in Virginia and New York, would not permit that to happen, and the Second Convention Movement, led by Patrick Henry and George Mason in Virginia, and proposed by the New York Convention circular letter that I mentioned earlier, was the anti-federal goal. Already the circular letter had won approval from Virginia, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. A second convention would reopen the whole question of the Constitution and allow restrictive amendments and alterations which could severely weaken the rampant nationalism of the new government of the United States. For the same reason, a second convention was precisely what the victorious Federalists had to prevent at all costs. The Federalists, of course, wanted no part of any amendments or reminders of their promises. And Senator Ralph Izzard, wealthy federal planter of South Carolina, expressed their sentiments at the first session of Congress when he urged his colleagues to totally forget about amendments and get down to the problems of finance and commerce, which is what the Constitution was written for, not for people, for finance and commerce. James Madison, who defeated James Monroe, as I mentioned earlier, in the Virginia elections to the House of Representatives, he automatically assumed the leadership of the Federalists in Congress. He abhorred the concept of a Bill of Rights. But as a shrewd political tactician, he realized that the Second Convention movement could swell to formidable proportions to avoid a potential crippling of the essentials of American nationalism. Madison decided that it was better to make some concessions right away and thus pull the teeth out of the drive for an overall overhaul of the Constitution before it would get underway. Madison also had a powerful political motive for making such concessions. Anti-federalism was powerful in Virginia and had been demonstrated in Henry's almost successful attempt to keep the hated Madison out of Congress altogether. If he was to save his political hide in his home state, Madison had to act quickly. And in his hard-fought election campaign, he had pledged to work for such amendments in Congress. Now, here is what most people do not know and do not understand. The approximately 210 amendments proposed by the various state conventions were of two basic kinds. And Virginia split hers along these lines. A Bill of Rights for Individuals and Statehood Reform to Battle the Federal Power. Typical of the former was trial by jury. Of the latter was the two-thirds requirements for passing a navigation law. The former did not alarm the Federalists nearly as much as the latter, for the former would leave intact a supreme national power, banned only in specific instances from making certain incursions on the perceived liberty of the individual. But the statehood amendments could cut aggressively into the very political and economic vitals of this national juggernaut that they had created and battle it effectively from within that power structure itself. The structural amendments would have expanded the libertarian or the liberty scope of the Bill of Rights from personal liberties alone to those of political and economic liberties. This was too much for the Federalists to even comprehend. Madison therefore decided to pass a Bill of Rights quickly and thus nip in the bud, thank you Barty Fife, 
any drive for structural reform in a second convention. He informed Congress that the anti-federal states and the Bill of Rights was fortunate in that it would be possible to end this threat by granting such a bill without, and I quote Madison here, endangering any part of our Constitution. Notice he didn't say their Constitution. If Congress refused to act, the public would be aroused, a second convention would be called, and the opposition could then force a reconsideration of the whole structure of their government. On the other hand, as he wrote to Thomas Jefferson, submission of a Bill of Rights would weaken the opposition by splitting the moderates away from the radicals. In other words, as Madison put it, the well-meaning from the designing opponents fix on the latter their true character and give to the government its due popularity and stability. Now, in Washington's inaugural address, which Washington only gave back then, the first inaugural address was only to the Congress, wasn't to the people at all. And, it, and the Congress, first Congress met in New York City. And after being inaugurated, George Washington goes to the Senate and the House, a joint meeting. And in his speech, he brusquely warned that amendments must not weaken the power of our government. How many times were you taught that in school, folks? Madison introduced amendments that proposed a Bill of Rights based on the proposed Virginia Amendments and the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Indeed, he hastened to assure his intention of submitting the Bill of Rights Amendments well in advance in order to forestall the next motion of Virginia's anti-federal congressman, Dr. Theodoric Bland, from introducing a resolution for a new constitutional convention. Politics were being played heavy here, guys. Madison's centrist action was predictably opposed from left and the right. Madison got hit from both sides on this. On the left with the anti-federalist leadership, they understood what Madison was trying to do all too well. And Senator William Grayson of Virginia wrote to Patrick Henry that Madison's amendments greatly overstressed personal liberty at the expense of reform of such matters as the direct tax power and the judiciary. The whole aspect of Madison's maneuver, wrote Grayson, was, and I quote, unquestionably to break the spirit of the Anti-Federalist Party by splitting them into divisions, unquote. The maneuver succeeded all too well as many of the anti-federalist bloc were ready to settle for a small part of the loaf and then give it to the new constitution, give in to the new constitution, I'm sorry. Even George Mason was almost willing to reconcile himself to this new government. But in North Carolina, Madison's introduction of the Bill of Rights proved instrumental in changing enough anti-federal support to ratify the constitution. North Carolina refused to ratify it. On the other side, many Federalists were unconvinced of the necessity for this maneuver. In the House, Roger Sherman attacked the idea of amendments and upheld stability of government above all else. Ooh, imagine that. In the ultra-Federalist, ultra Fisher Ames sneered at Madison's amendment effort as based on research into personal trivia and designed to advance Madison's personal political popularity. Georgia's James Jackson was already 
divining a constitution not quite a year old. The constitution, he argued, must be left totally intact. Otherwise, a patchwork flood of amendments might follow. The fact that the constitution itself was a patchwork seemed to be lost on the good Georgia congressman. Perhaps the most extreme expression of the House came from former Judge Samuel Livermore, who had pledged a key vote in ratifying the Constitution in New Hampshire. The judge was outraged about the restraints involved in prohibiting cruel and unusual punishments in the Bill of Rights. What? Livermore couldn't understand why necessary and salutary punishments should be prohibited merely because they were cruel. Beginning to get an idea of what we're dealing here, gentlemen. Uh, Jim, any comments to this point? It's just astounding. <laughs> I'll tell you what, didn't learn any of this stuff in school. And uh, I'm just speechless, basically. You mean down at Marxist U, they didn't teach you this? Nope. <laughs> Uh, imagine that. Well, yeah. Dale, Dale from your uh, Utah education out there in the Great Salt Lake. Uh, how much of this did you learn in school, sir? Unmute there, Dale. Wow. Can you hear me, Mike? How's I that? can now. There we go. I thought I was on mute and I was uh, okay. Anyway, yeah, no, ironically, I went through uh, public school in the state of New York. And uh, so, you know, I'm surprised to hear that it was actually the New York delegation <clears throat> that was promulgating this uh, circular letter. But, you know, t things have reversed themselves in the intervening years. Uh, I have a question, Mike, for you, being that Please. You're, you are the um, guy who's got his head in this period of time more than anybody I know. Obviously, the Federalist side of the equation had a lot of uh, self-serving individuals, people who were uh, the uh, covert uh, agents of grand economic entities, you know, we, and the old uh, power system. I think that that's a given, and and the anti-federalists were more, much more worried about uh, the old power structure reinsinuating itself on this continent. But was there a type of individual that you could call a conscientious federalist, and what was their fear in? Can you speak to if there is was such an animal? What was his authentic concerns? Had we gone down the anti-federalist, adopted the anti-federalist template for government? No, oh, excellent question, Dale. I I do not find in my studies of uh, a couple of years, uh, more about forty, uh, I do not find that there was an idealist among the federalists. All of the people there that I found who called themselves Federalists were there to create a government in which they would control the people, in which they could use the people as we're being used now 
that the people could be used as a source of income for them to finance whatever programs they decided they wanted to try. They would just come up with unlimited taxation from unlimited sources to tax the people to create anything they wanted to do. Whatever they wanted to do, they wanted to be imperial. George Washington referred to their imperial dignity in a letter to John Jay, and which gave them the right to coerce the masses, which is exactly what they have today, to do exactly what they want to do. And I didn't find any idealist among the Federalists. I found some who were, you know, uh, the thing that most people don't understand is there were several Federalists at the uh, Constitutional Convention who were there for one reason and one reason only, and that was to prevent themselves from being charged with embezzlement and treason. And they went there. This is Robert Morris, Gouverneur Morris, and several others who went to the Constitutional Convention hoping to write into the Constitution the protections they would need to prevent themselves from being hanged, as Robert Morris put in a letter to Francis Hopkinson. And he said in that letter, if they pass the right amendment, I will hang, because he had embezzled millions of dollars away from the federal government. And he wanted to make sure that the Constitution protected he and his fellow conspirators. And they got it done. They got it done with no ex post facto laws. They got it done with the the article that said only the debts owed by the United States were uh, legal. They did away with any debts owed to the United States, which would have been Morris, Gouverneur Morris, so many of these other people who would have owed money to the government. And they were successful in creating a government which protected them from their crimes. And today we have a mass of people who think that that Constitution was inspired by God, just the opposite. Did I answer your question, Dale? Yeah, that's that's kind of shocking. Uh, I mean, even even amongst uh, the very jaded uh, people running the the a war between the states, the war of northern aggression, and initiating it, you would have to say there was a sprinkling of folks who genuinely con- were concerned about dividing the, the the power in the United States between two nations and that we would be consumed piecemeal by the British Empire uh, as a result of that. Now, I think they were full of beans for thinking. I don't think that was authentic. I don't think the southern states would have ever allowed themselves to become the the pawn of uh, the British Empire uh, or, or a, an outpost of the British Empire. But uh, there were people in the north who who did hold that fear or that belief and were motivated by it. But you're saying that they're, they're, in all of your readings of correspondence and journals and everything else, you have not come across somebody who you would say made a persuasive argument that we had to advance very quickly and, and concentrate, consolidate the power in the colonies for, for, for the purposes of survival. You haven't seen that argument made in an authentic way. Is is that what you're saying? No, uh, zero people that I saw from the convention uh, ever offered that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But just to throw out a question here, Jim, to you and Dale, 
as we looked at the proposed amendments that came from the various states, what was the single issue, the single amendment that appeared in every state's suggestion for amendments? Jim, you want to, do you know what that was? Uh, I'd say keep and bear arms. That'd that be is the answer. Thing. That's the answer I received most often, but it only, mm-hmm. that, uh, that amendment only came from five states. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever it is, Mike, I'm going to, I'm going to take a guess and say that it already existed in the Virginia Bill of Rights. Well, it existed in the Articles of Confederation, too. And that was the fact that there could be no direct taxation on individuals. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. A portion. That, a portion. Yeah, that came from every state that offered amendments. No direct taxation. Patrick Henry addressed that in the in the convention by saying that the individual should never be allowed to be taxed by government. That only their states should be allowed to be taxed. And then each state would provide that taxation apportioned to their population. But this, these federalists wanted the ability to directly tax the people. And Patrick Henry spoke to that at the Virginia Ratification Convention by saying, look, if you tell a state that they have to produce so much money, you can't put a state in prison. But if you tell an individual they have to present so much money and they don't, you can put them in prison. Patrick Henry addressed that perfectly. And that's the reason he fought against direct taxation. But even though direct taxation was offered by every state, the opposition to direct taxation, I should say, even though it was offered by every state that offered amendments, James Madison did not include that in his group of amendments that he proposed to the Congress. Imagine that. (laughs) Once again, Patrick Henry proves to be absolutely brilliant. I I have a question. Yes, sir. Samuel, go ahead. Yeah. In that first Congress, uh, how many men were those and how many of those were Federalists? Well, in the House of Representatives, there were 39 Federalists. There were 11 Anti-Federalists. In the Senate, there were 20 Federalist senators. There were two Anti-Federalist senators, both of whom were from Virginia. Whoa. And that, that's an excellent question, Samuel. Most people do not even have an idea that it was that heavily weighted toward the Federalists. But the Anti-Federalist stand in the House of Representatives was led by Aidness Burke and Thomas Tudor Tucker of South Carolina. Burke and Tucker urged the inclusion of structured certain structured amendments, such as the prohibition of federal direct taxes, but their efforts were in vain. Tucker also tried in vain to include expressly before delegated in the 10th Amendment, thus greatly limiting the powers granted to Congress. But James Madison is the one who absolutely went after Thomas Tudor Tucker and said the government can never be limited to its expressly delegated powers. It must always have the powers of implication. 
In other words, we can do whatever the hell we want to into hell with you. Tucker well, well. also, and uh, so uh, finally, after a long and reluctant delay, the House passed 17 restrictive amendments on August the 24th of In the Senate, 20 to 2 now for the Federalists, the Anti-Federalist fight was led by the two Virginia Senators, Richard Henry Lee and William Grayson. Lee and Grayson followed the Tucker-Burke path by introducing structural amendments. Indeed, they introduced a mixture of the amendments proposed by the Virginia Convention. They also added a proposal to prohibit federal direct taxation on the people. All of these were rejected by the Senate. The most creative and daringly democratic amendment was to bind representatives to follow the instructions of their constituents. Ooh, imagine that. <laughs> but in all the Senate, only Lee and Gratian supported that amendment. However, while Lee well understood the Machiavellian po political reasons for the amendments, he concluded at the end that half a loaf was better than none. Lee, however, remained highly critical of the way in which his colleagues had inhibited and enfeebled the amendments that the people had sent to the first Congress. The hardline Federalists who, who scorned any concessions were led in the Senate by Ralph Izzard of South Carolina, John Langdon of New Hampshire, and the ineffable, corrupt Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, who owed the government $17 million in 1789. The Senate condensed the House amendments into 12, and a joint conference committee submitted final revisions of the 12 amendments, which were approved by the Congress on September the 25th. The hardcore anti-Federalists were angry. Lee was critical. Grayson bitterly concluded that the submitted Bill of Rights amendments would do more harm than good to the American people. Patrick Henry agreed, lamenting the lack of a prohibition of direct taxation again. And he tried to postpone the ratification of the amendments by the Virginia House. Even the moderate Federalist, and this may be your answer here, Dale, even the moderate Federalist, Thomas Jefferson, though favoring the Bill of Rights, was disgruntled at the lack of a prohibition on government grants of monopoly and he was also very much upset at the granting of a standing army. Patrick Henry's gallant fight against the overly soft amendments and the shrewd Madisonian strategy was able to delay Virginia's ratification until it became the last of the 11 states needed to approve. New Jersey was the first state to ratify in late November 1789, but while nine states moved to ratify by June of 1790, Virginia, the last state, took over two years after submission to ratify. In Virginia, the struggle was waged between the lower house, now controlled by the Federalists, and the Anti-Federalist-controlled Senate, which was finally pressured into ratifying on December the 15th of 1791. Now listen to this. Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia have never ratified the Bill of Rights. How many people knew that? Not me. No, Michael, no, I have no idea. Michael, do you think it's a coincidence that the that the false flag that starts the Civil War happens in their neck of the woods? 
Uh, no, uh, I do not believe in coincidences, Samuel. Especially <laughs> political coincidences. Yeah. But uh, ironically, though, Georgia refused to ratify the Bill of Rights because they were almost completely Federalist, and they believed that they, any Bill of Rights was unnecessary. So there you go, Georgia. And Connecticut, on the equally ultra-Federalist uh, ultra view that any concession would imply that the Constitution was not an unflawed perfection. So they but believe that, that none of that should have happened. In Massachusetts, too, the Federalists wanted no amendments, while the Anti-Federalists held out for stronger amendments between the two forces, and because of that, Massachusetts never ratified. Of the 12 amendments submitted to the states, the first two were not ratified. Those were minor provisions dealing with the organization of Congress. The remaining 10 amendments composed nine highly significant articles guaranteeing various personal liberties against the federal government, as well as one complementary structural amendment. None of the political and economic liberties desired by the Anti-Federalists or listed in their lists, including the prohibition of direct taxes, a standing army, two-thirds requirement for laws regulating commerce, were never included. But the adopted Bill of Rights was significant enough, and all of their provisions were intensely favored toward liberty. So we all know what... Uh, what those uh, 10 amendments are because those are the ones we look at today. But let's not forget that William Grayson and Richard Henry Lee, the two Federalist senators, said that the Bill of Rights would do more harm and good because there was not included in the Constitution any form of enforcement for the people. And today we look at the Second Amendment and we say, oh, well, the Second Amendment, uh, yeah. Well, you know, they've said for many years that, uh, you know, the, this only applied to the federal government. Crap. The First Amendment was the only government that only applied to the federal government because it starts off how? Congress shall make no law. The rest of the amendments were obviously against the states and the federal government. But if people, if you want to believe your Bill of Rights works, if you really think that that is out there and that the government pays any attention to it, the Second Amendment has to be the most primary one out there in the fact that today we have over 2,000 federal laws and regulations against firearms. Every damn one of them is unconstitutional. Amen. And any state law that restricts that restricts the ownership of firearms is also anti is totally unconstitutional. Yep. Would it be an oversimplification to say that when the anti-federalists failed to debar the federal government from collecting taxes uh, on individuals, that that constituted the overthrow of the revolution? Absolutely. And uh, Sheldon Richmond, who is a historian most people have not, never heard of, he refers to the Constitution, and I've always uh, quoted him. He said that the Constitution was a counter-revolution in favor of government. That the Constitution took the people's rights and trashed them. 
basically trading of, one monarchy for another. Yes. Because there was very little difference in, in words and semantics only. There was very little difference in the government that was brought about by the Constitution of 1789 and the monarchy of George, King George III. As a matter of fact, King George's taxes weren't as tough as the taxes that came in the new Constitution. And stop and think about the Whiskey Rebellion. The people who revolted against England because of taxes and because of the Stamp Act revolted against this new government because of their taxes, unfair taxes against whiskey. Wine wasn't taxed. You ever figured that, ever figured that one out? Yeah, because all the uh, hierarchy, the uh, intelligentsia, the uh, elite drink wine. The little guys so, drink the whiskey. So wine wasn't taxed, but... Uh, Whiskey was, and when and we look at the Whiskey Rebellion today, and we're taught that the Whiskey Rebellion was only in western Pennsylvania. That's bullcrap. The Whiskey Rebellion was in all 13 colonies, or all 13 states, and especially in the South. It wasn't enforced at all in the South because no one would agree to be a tax collector. <laughs> Gotta love it. No one wanted the job. No, Everybody, when they'd said, okay, we need to collect these whiskey taxes here, we'll make you a government employee and put you in charge of going out there and collecting taxes, they said, not no, but hell no. What if we did that something like that today, where we just made it so difficult to survive as a tax collector that nobody would sign up for the job? <laughs> Well, that's what the DHS is for. <laughs> <laughs> to haul you off if you have things, thoughts like that. <laughs> Has anybody ever read One in a Million by uh, Pat Shanahan? Yes. That is uh, kind of what I'm leading to. <laughs> or uh, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's you know for those that haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's very similar to um, the uh, uh, Unintended Consequences by uh, John Ross that deals with the BATF and the Second Amendment, but this one deals uh, with the individuals representing Satan and uh, how they ran afoul of some uh, former military people <laughs> and what price they paid. But uh, it's a rather interesting book, and I think it, uh, you know, if not now, definitely down the road could have some real application to what we need to do to straighten things out a little bit, if nothing else. Well, very much so, uh, guys. And one of the things I think most people also are totally aware of, you know, we call uh, James Madison the father of the Constitution. He's called the father of the Bill of Rights. And all of that is nothing but Marxist, Marxist hyperbole. But here is something that most people don't know is that when James Madison knew. You got to give him credit. I've always referred to him. He was not a dummy. I've always referred to him as the Bill Clinton of the founding era. This guy could read the pulse. He knew that if they didn't support some kind of Bill of Rights, that not only was the, there going to be another uh, convention, not only that, but he also knew that his political career was dead in the water. Because if he did not produce this Bill of Rights that he promised, there was no way in hell he was ever going to be elected to anything in Virginia. 
He knew that. He knew his political career was over. So he proposed this Bill of Rights right out of the gate. And one of the first people Mike, to attack. You, Go ahead. Sorry to cut into you. You can see that. You see that uh, dynamic repeated again and again in history that the regime that survives is the one that focuses on controlling the opposition and, in this case, dividing the opposition. You know, that's why the British Empire stayed on top of the world for so many centuries, uh, because they understood you've got to get you've got to get in there and and muddy the water uh, with the opposition. It isn't, it isn't how strong you are. It's how, how perceptive you are of your, the natural fissures in, in the party amongst the parties who would be in opposition to you and exploiting them. So Madison uh, sounds like a a really shrewd guy to make sure and throw, you know, throw the wolf pack as he saw it, uh, a, a bone or two, right? Well, he, uh, in his letters to uh, Thomas Jefferson, he said, uh, I can split the opposition by providing these amendments. And he knew exactly what he was doing. But even at that, he was attacked full on by the Federalists. And especially no less than Noah Webster. Noah Webster went after uh, Madison like a dog after a bone. And he published an article in, on August 14th of 1789 after Madison had proposed this Bill of Rights. And uh, both, he said, go ahead. Yeah, but all that would just increase the bona fides of Madison, you know, uh, would, would make him shinier for the parties that wanted to, among the anti-federalists that were inclined to to compromise uh, and, and take an even strain, you know, Madison was looking good because the hardcore Federalists were attacking him. I'm just thinking out loud here. Well, and you're exactly right, because nothing probably built James Madison's power in Virginia more than to be attacked by a by a Massachusetts Yankee. Because today we've got the same thing. If I want if I want to get a Republican elected, I make damn sure the liberal Democrats don't like him. Or her, the same dynamic still still at play. But uh, Webster went after James Madison in a public uh, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's rather detailed, but he wouldn't write as Noah Webster. He wrote as Pacificus. And. Ironically, in 1792, when James Madison is almost hoisted on his own petard and he had to make a decision, do I continue to support the Federalists and their government, which I helped create, or do I side with my fellow Virginian, James Matt? I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson? Do I? And he was faced in 1792 with a huge decision. And what brought about that decision was... Uh, Washington's issue of a neutrality in the war between England and France because America was seriously split on who they should support. France had supported America in World War, um, World War oh my gosh, had supported uh, America in the Revolutionary War. And they had strongly support them, supported them. So when Washington takes a neutral stance in 1792, in the war between England and France, 
the people in the South, especially, you know, who saw that France had come to the aid of America and helped them win their independence, they felt like Washington had done the ultimate screw up. You don't desert the people who supported you for your independence. And so Washington was stuck between a rock and a hard place because, of course, all of the Yankees, all of the northern states supported England. They were still very much influenced by England, especially our good friend Alexander Hamilton. So Washington was in a tough place. So Washington said, look, well, the best way for me to win this battle is not take a side. So that's what he did with his uh, feeling of neutrality. His issue of a uh, position of neutrality by the government. Well, he was immediately attacked by both sides because the uh, anti-federalists, uh, you know, especially said, and Madison himself said, look, you, you, you do not have that authority. You're not granted that authority in the Constitution. You can't just issue a statement of neutrality. Congress can declare war, but the president cannot say, no, we don't support anybody. We're just neutral. And so that was a huge political battle we're never taught about. But then uh, during that 1792 period, when uh, Madison comes out opposing Washington, which just really was something unusual for Madison to do, but he had to take sides with his friend Thomas Jefferson. And we know Jefferson was very much uh, a friend of the French. He had been the ambassador to France for years. And so he was very much for them. This was where the uh, Madison had to, uh, you know, uh, either fish or cut bait, as the old uh, Southern saying goes. And so he decided to go with his friend Madison, um, with his friend Jefferson, which, of course, eventually led to his political power as vice president, as secretary of state for Jefferson. And then eventually to be president. So Madison was not an idiot. But uh, for any of those out there who are interested, I have a PDF of the circular letter that was sent by the uh, delegates of New York to the governors, uh, you know, asking for a Bill of Rights. I have that. That's not easy to come by. I also have the entire letter of Pacificus to James Madison in August 14th of 1789. Jim, I'll tell you what, I'll forward those on to you. And if people would like to have those, I'll just let them contact you if that works. That'd be just fine. All right. Well, I'll make sure that I get that done at the conclusion of our program today. Um, and uh, then here is something. Now, if people think that the Bill of Rights actually means something, let's look at what Alexander Hamilton said about the Bill of Rights. <clears throat> Pardon me. And Hamilton said, and I quote, it is because the amendments subsequently made meeting scarcely any of the important objections which were urged against our Constitution. Leaving the structure of the government and the mass of distribution of its powers where they were intended to be. These amendments are too insignificant to be with any sensible man a reason for being reconciled to the system if he thought it was originally bad, unquote. What does that tell you, Jim? We've been had. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Why is it so hard for people to 
think about the Constitution as counter-revolution when you see what it enabled the Lincoln administration to do, what, 80 years later or 70 years later or whatever? Well, 83 years, I think. Wasn't wasn't ratification in 1791, by the way? Uh, Ratification actually occurred in 1788. 88, okay. And uh, the Bill of New Rights Hampshire, was ninety-one. New uh, and the Bill of Rights was ninety-one. Correct, Jim. Uh, okay. New Hampshire, New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify, and they ratified in the middle of the Virginia Ratification Convention. And that's when Patrick Henry made his speech, and he said, "I don't care if twelve people ratify it. Virginia should not do it because it's just not right for the people of Virginia." And I'm paraphrasing there. But if you really want to know James Madison, as we talk about. Madison, and he's the father of this and the father of that. I think he gave the whole thing away in a letter to Richard Peters on the 19th of August of 1789. And as I've said repeatedly for years, if you want to know the truth of the founding era history, read the letters between the founders. Richard Peters was a prominent politician, and he wrote to uh, James Madison just smashing him for even suggesting a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. And if you want to know the true character of James Madison, read that letter from James Madison to Richard Peters on the 19th of August of 1789. And Jim, I will forward that to you as well. And you can distribute as you see fit, sir. All righty. So, Dale, thoughts so far, buddy? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just another. This, these, these uh, episodes of the I'm a part of here with you, Mike, where you you call out or you you uh, pull out these significant thoughts and then join them uh, together after years and really a lifetime of burrowing into the correspondence of founding fathers and other documents. Uh, and then, and then we get the, you know, the benefit of all that filtration that you've done. It, every time I come into contact with this, uh, information that you select, I realize that, uh, more, all the more that, uh, the, the difference between what the powers, the elites were really doing and what they sold the public, uh, and it's just it's 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 really a depressing revelation on top of a depressing revelation, and the and the the the, the nation ends up being a war machine uh, in the 20th century to lay waste to the uh, the enemies of the banking cartel. That that's the bottom line. Uh, <laughs> you know, every time there has been a some kind of desperate movement on the globe of a nation state to defend itself against the banking hegemon uh it's this it's this nation that has that has largely crushed it you know been tasked with crushing it and and you help us understand the sequence uh, that you know where we we went from the revolution to the the war machine to the 20th century war machine 
but uh, anyway, I'm kind of thinking out loud, rambling, but very, uh, very, dis- very disheartening. Uh, and and as soon as I think I'm jaded and kind of cynical uh, uh, about the whole thing, uh, you you give us another sequence of revelations <laughs> and drill us down into the ground farther. So anyway, I hope that's uh, I hope you find that high praise. Well, I certainly appreciate that, Dale, and thank you very much. But, uh, you know, I've talked with a lot of people. I guess I talk with our good friend Robert Hudson two or three times a week at a minimum. Uh, I talk with a lot of other folks. I uh, had a text conversation with our good friend Brad Peoples this morning. And uh, so, uh, but guys, I I see this as something we all have to do. Uh, you know, the people have to know the truth because you look at so many things. We look at what Marcus Tullius Cicero said about the truths of history. The people who have failed to learn their, their own history will be forever children. Well, look around you. Tell me the people who are wearing masks, standing six feet apart and running to get a jab aren't acting as children, scared children. Yeah, many of those same people could quote chapter and verse and statistics on any football player in the last 20 years absolutely and i promise you they will all be they're probably uh we probably don't have a very large listening audience jim because there's bowl games on television are there <laughs> i wouldn't know that's the well, rumor man it's one of the i, I got, one of I the got a question the... yes sir yeah. michael um you know the old adage that the you know um, money corrupts. Do you think there's a correlation between certain parts of the country, like say, including here Georgia, prosperity and being a federalist? Well, absolutely, because you didn't find any federalists who were working men. If you if you look at history, the working men, the average Joe, Joe Sixpack, as he's been referred to, or the the common ordinary man, only had a representative with the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists did not represent the average American citizen, not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Now, one of the things that a lot of people are un, unaware of is that when the Constitution was originally sent to the Congress to send on to the states for ratification. Richard Henry Lee was a member of Congress at that time. Richard Henry Lee tried to add amendments or a Bill of Rights to the Constitution before it was sent out to the states, but the Federalist-controlled Congress said, not no, but hell no. So the Federalists never represented the people of this country. They represented a class of people. And uh, Alexander Hamilton referred to that class as the wealthy and the well-born, the aristocracy. They constantly mentioned those. The government that was created in 1789 didn't have a damn thing to do with the people. That's why they voted down a Bill of Rights unanimously. It was never about the people. You know, uh, Mike and... uh everybody else uh, on on the party line here i i am very interested if we have time next hour to hear any thoughts that you guys have about the denouement of this thing 
you know, every 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 tyranny has a has a lifespan until it's uh, replaced by another tyranny. Usually, <laughs> so I, I I'd be very curious if you have any 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 uh, model in your head for how this thing comes uh, decouples uh, or comes unglued and uh, and uh, what it turns into, what it phases into, assuming that foreign powers aren't here uh, dictating what replaces it. Well, Dale, in my opinion, that's an excellent comment and question. But in my opinion, uh, the revolution, uh, the powers that be in 2019 was the first year in the history of this country that the revenues collected by this country would not pay the interest on the debt. And that's in the official records. So if they couldn't pay the interest, if the money was not going to cover the interest to the international banking cabal, to the synagogue of Satan, if it was not going to do that, they had to immediately begin to put their uh, catastrophe plan into action. They had had to immediately say, okay, well, let's do our takeover now. We have to do our takeover. How are we going to do this? And the evidence is out there. They were running this uh, uh, pandemic thing by people. I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, I promise you. But in 2009, I wrote an article that said that the government would eventually come after us with a planned pandemic with vaccinations. And that's, I, I been, got it. that's been I, a while I, back. I, 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 I think they're calling it the Great Reset and the New World Order. And another statistic <laughs> that I just heard yesterday is this is the first time in this country's history that polls are showing less than 50% of the population is now calling itself Christian. Well, I think that is critical as well. But, uh, gentlemen, just as a trivia question, and thanks uh, for bringing it out, but a trivia question, gentlemen, who was the first U.S. politician ever to use the phrase the New World Order? I'm George trying, W. Bush. That's he's the well. George H. W. is the first one I was thinking of, but um, there the might be man. somebody before that. <laughs> the first Daddy Bush. president, the first president to ever use the phrase "New World Order" was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon. I thought there was somebody well, earlier. Do, do we have a top of the hour break? Not to. Uh... Nope. We just nope. go for the full two hours. Yeah, oh, we just cool. go wide open, Dale. If uh, if you're getting tired out there in Salt Lake City, uh, dip your head in the Salt Lake and come back, buddy. Yeah, if you need no, to. No, no, uh... no, no, we're good. Okay. We're, no, we're good to go. I just wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't cutting into to a, a, a hard break. Uh, nope. Is the term we use in terrestrial broadcasting, and uh, <laughs> that's cool. We don't have to. Uh, we don't have an, have to have a, an interruption. Yep. Uh, so, so that 2019 date, Mike Gaddy, is uh, kind of that's kind of the end of the uh, that's the end of the Federal Reserve note. The, the other shoe just has to drop, but that 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 that's the waypoint for uh, the end of that cur- that currency instrument that uh, that they ginned up in in 1913. 
Well, right after that information came out, a senator from the state of Oregon, uh, he was tasked by the Senate, uh, Mitch McCollum, as a matter of fact, he was tasked to create a committee to endeavor to understand how the federal government could take all 401ks and uh, IRAs. And ironically, guys, when they when they decided to look into how that could be done, how much money sat in IRAs and 401ks in America? Ah, uh, you've asked this question before, and uh, I'm drawing a blank. So, uh, twenty-eight trillion dollars. What was our national debt? Uh, officially, it's in the twenties. Uh, but but the the obligations uh, reach into the two hundreds or more. Oh yeah, the uh, you know the uh, whatever you call the unfunded mandates go well over two hundred million a trillion. Yeah. So so uh, you guys think that there's a uh, you know that's just coincidence that suddenly the revenues collected do not meet the interest on the national debt and then we have a Senate committee which is going to decide how that the IRAs and 401ks in this country could be confiscated into government use? Well, that's, and, uh, that, that's a, that, would be a, that would be quite a shocking, bold uh, move. And I have to think that they would do that at a time when other manufactured crises were in such an intense phase that it would just be seen as an emergency measure and part of, you know, sort of a broken field strategy. Uh, you know, if they, if they tried to do that with the present level of order, as, 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 as strange as the times are right now, uh, I, I think it would uh, put them in jeopardy. So they have to have uh, some really bad things going on, and uh, it has to be storming for, to do something like that. That would be my guess. Dale, are you, you telling think? me that, do you think, uh, I'm sorry, Brent, let me finish and then you jump on me, buddy. Uh, but do you think for a minute that a people who will play Russian roulette with the health of themselves and their children give a damn if you steal their money? I, I just think that the timing, uh, there are things in the works presently that will have people so panicked uh, that I, I would just guess that they would, the government would let those processes mature a little bit and have dogs and cats living together and, you know, really things going nuts before they pull the trigger on that particular one, Mike. That's just a guess on my part. Well, that's that's valid. Brent, you had a comment, sir? Yeah. Uh, do you think they do it under the guise of a new social security program? Uh, Brent, you're all too prescient, sir. That's exactly what the, the Senate committee came up with. We will tell the people that we are taking their IRAs and their 401ks and we're putting them into a system like Social Security. Your money is still there. Your money's still safe. You'll all get it. But, of course, we're going to give you all vaccinations and kill you all so you won't be even asking for it. Now, they didn't say the last part, Brent. That was mine. Didn't didn't Klaus Schwab uh, telegraph this when he said you'll own nothing? 
exactly. Exactly. And that, that's the point. Because they can access these, and, and that was proven in their study. I, I wish I could think of that senator's name from Oregon. They put him as chairman of the committee because he was, uh, 2020 was his last year in office, and he was retiring. So he wasn't going to catch any political flack for being involved in this. You'd think they'd There'd play uh, that song. Retirements. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Brent. I'm sorry. You'd think they'd play that song loudly. Liar, liar, liar. <laughs> nah. Nah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because everybody still believes government is their God. Government's not going to tell them a lie. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what can I say? But I do want to get into that uh, little amendment that could here in a couple of minutes, Jim. Uh, but uh, uh, could you give me just a couple of minutes for a break? Sure. Uh, you, you, keep, you keep going, and uh, I'll come back because I want to talk about this little amendment that could turn their whole world upside down, uh, <laughs> and they have avoided it at all cost. Go so right ahead. Give, give me a couple. All righty. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, had me curious, I've heard over the, over the years that when this country, country was first founded, that um, uh, in, uh, corporations were illegal. And if anyone has any documentation to verify that, I would love to see it. This is something that I've been curious about for quite some time. And, uh, wow. That's a real bad background noise there. I just wonder if that's Mike doing a vacuuming or something. It's not muted. So the only thing I can think of is that might be coming from Mike. Yeah, turn down the Bluetooth until <laughs> he gets back. Um, I'm not sure what's causing that. USB, I should say. Um, but yeah, if anyone has anything about um, corporations being illegal for the first part of this country's history, I would be very interested in seeing it. I've heard it, but I've never seen documentation of it. And uh, yeah, yeah, Jim, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't really know. Big... Okay, I, I'll try again. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know about the beginning. States, when they made their charters originally, before they went national and international, they had to show they, every so many years they had a re-up and show that they were doing good for the community mm. okay makes sense but yeah but then they it, went it, national they and then they went international and then you know they they started the call shots at that point okay dale what were you saying 
my, my recollection is is that they were they had their charter uh, held a uh, charter was held over their head the extension of their charter and I don't know the particulars but I know there were advocates at the time that the that corporations could exist uh, with the qualification that they operate under a ten year charter and that they uh, when that renews uh, they show the, their benefit to um, the people at large you know to the community to the common wheel. Okay, that makes sense. I've you know I've I've heard little bits and pieces of that stuff, just never seen anything uh, directly, and it just had me curious. But uh, well, who knows? I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, that's what's that's my on. understanding. That's my understanding as well. National really breaking up again. Bad connection, Sammy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, you just really, really digitized. Sounding like that, uh, the teacher on Charlie Brown. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's what happens when you're out in the boonies, right? The good Absolutely. Things, yeah, there's a double-edged sword there. But uh, Mike, is that you back? Yeah, I'm back, buddy. Okay. Um, the one thing, now, please understand, people. I No one uh, gets more upset at people who come up with these magic beans than I do. Because we live in a corrupt system. A corrupt system is never going to allow you to come up to them and say, look, here I found this magic bean, and all of the people in government are going to say, oops, you got us. We give up. We'll all go to prison now. Take our money. That's never going to happen, people. I don't care how many of these uh, amendments, all, all these things you come up with. But if there is one amendment that this government has avoided, especially the Supreme Court, and we all, so many times, we've got a Tenth Amendment Foundation, we've got all of this stuff, we've got Second Amendment Foundations. My question is, why has no one ever formed the Ninth Amendment Foundation? Because the Ninth Amendment absolutely scares these people. Otherwise, they would deal with it. The Supreme Court will not mention the Ninth Amendment without mentioning the Fourteenth Amendment. They will not go anywhere near the Ninth Amendment. And there's a reason for that, I promise you. Oh, yeah. Because the Ninth Amendment says that the people have rights and Here's, here's the issue, guys, is that the courts, the federal courts, if they operated as they are required to do, would search through the Ninth Amendment to find the people's rights that aren't listed. Yeah. But instead, they oppose them. That's why they use the 14th Amendment. When they write about anything about the Ninth Amendment, it has to include the 14th Amendment in their decision. These people are scared to death of the Ninth Amendment. And yet, all of these freedom fighters out there, all of these people who have all of the wonderful messages about freedom, never mention the Ninth Amendment. Why? Why does the wall builder down there, whatever his name is, the guy with all the tapes and all David the other stuff, Barton. why does he never mention... Yeah, David Barton, why does he not mention the Ninth Amendment? Why does uh, uh, Chris Ann Hall not mention the Ninth Amendment? Why does the Tenth Amendment Center not mention the Ninth Amendment? 
The Tenth Amendment is neutered by the exclusion of the word expressly. Yep. And in essence, to if the truth be told, the Ninth Amendment, it's always struck me as interesting why the Supreme Court avoids that. Federal courts avoid the Ninth Amendment. Lawyers do not make a case based on the Ninth Amendment. There's got to be something here that we're missing, people. They do not want to go near that. That must be the kryptonite. Good point. But I promise you, but I promise you if you bring up the Ninth Amendment, if you get a lawyer that even knows there's a Ninth Amendment, and if you bring up the Ninth Amendment, they are going to throw the 14th Amendment at you. So why is everyone avoiding the Ninth Amendment, guys? My guess is because it's very open-ended. There's nothing specifically enumerated there that they can hang their hat on. And they're too lacking in imagination to go outside the box and say, hey, wait a minute, this thing provides for all different kinds of stuff. That's my guess. Well, Jim uh, and Dale, do either one of you gentlemen or anyone else listening, Brent, Samuel, anyone else, do you know why the Ninth Amendment was included? It was included to shut people up. And who, uh, the reason being is that at the Constitutional Convention, when a Bill of Rights was brought up by George Mason and seconded by Elbridge Gerry, suddenly James Wilson from uh, Pennsylvania jumps up and he was a monarchist of many colors and James Wilson jumps up and says oh well we can't list the rights of the people because there are so many rights we could never list them all really when have we ever heard a court say that that the people have so many rights that they are so numerous they can't be listed so the ninth amendment was put in there to cover the Federalist position as listed by James Wilson. Thoughts on that, Jim? Cop out, but at the same time could turn around to bite him in the backside. Uh, I remember vaguely something along those lines and uh, just having having that thing in there. And you know, it 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 basically points in the direction of the fact that the people are really the sovereigns and their rights come from God and they're innumerable. And uh, that's, you know, people just need to realize that, yeah, you got them, you need to exercise them, or you don't got them. Well, Jim, would you say, what would you say to this comment, you and Dave? If I said the Ninth Amendment might be the only reference to the people's natural God-given rights in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, there's something incongruent, uh, and, and this is only just dawning on, on me, not like I've been studying on the subject, but there, there is an incongruency that the Ninth Amendment, as I read it just now, uh, seems to seems to manifest the, the, the and, and it is that the, the, it is a uh, homage to God-given or inherent or natural rights uh, and that 
they they are inviolate. There's a there's a suggestion that the that such are inviolate, and it's almost like a warning shot, and and it's so anomalous in a in a document that. It has all these specifications. The ninth is is very uh, it, it's it's infinite uh, in its nature. You see where I'm driving with that, Jim and Mike. Oh, absolutely! And just mm-hmm. to show you the perversion of this government, the perversion of this government is that the Supreme Court used the Ninth Amendment in conjunction with the Fourteenth Amendment to. Uh, legalize same-sex marriage. That's well, that pretty much like disgusting. That sounds like the Marxist, uh, the culturally Marxist U.S. government. I mean, it's, where is the epicenter of Marxism on the globe today? Well, it has to be here. It's been here for decades, centuries. Yep. Well, the Republican Party was founded by Marxists, as we were discussing before the program. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Cal and I went into that last week about the very basis, the very structure of the government of the GOP party is Marxist. 17 of the conventioneers at the first GOP convention in 1852 were all close friends of Marx and Engels and professed, professed socialists. And, uh, and, it, you know, it, and it financed the the Bolshevik Revolution, and it supported Stalin in World War II. Oh, big time. Oh, our support for Stalin in World War II is just absolutely unreal. I brought that up on a couple of programs. One with DW yep. is that when the United States under FDR, he was elected in 32. In 33, he immediately established uh, relations with the Soviet Union. And then from that point on, for us to ally in 1939, 1940, for the United States to ally with the Soviet Union, knowing full well that Stalin had executed seven to nine million Ukrainians. And we decided, oh, well, we're going to take him because Hitler may do something bad. When, well, we know when what, Hitler we know does his, go ahead. When when Hitler ahead, does his speech declaring declaring war against the United States, he doesn't declare war really on the United States. He mentions FDR, 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 FDR. <laughs> well, he knew FDR was a socialist. He was a communist. He knew that, and especially Ele- uh, Eleanor. She was a big time communist. You know, you gotta, you gotta almost feel sorry for. Uh, well, I do feel sorry for the Germans. I mean, that that eleven minute uh, recording that came out uh, was rediscovered of of Adolf Hitler speaking with the Finnish uh, general uh, in a train car. Uh, one of the things that uh, Hitler says to, I believe it was Mannerheim, General Mannerheim, is that the almost in the tone of his voice, there's a there's a shock related 
that when they discovered a tank factory that I believe he said uh, had 80,000 essentially slave workers, but, you know, employees in the Soviet sense, uh, working three shifts. Now, is anybody going to tell me that uh, Arm and & Hammer and uh, Ford Motor Company were not vital to the establishment of a tank factory that had 80,000 workers? Well, uh, Dale, let's go back to 1936. In an official broadcast, Winston Churchill said the following, and I quote, we will force this war upon Hitler if he wants it or not, unquote. And then in a 1936 statement to U.S. General Robert E. Wood, Churchill said this, Germany becomes too powerful. We have to crush it. And then in his own book titled The Second World War, Second World War, Churchill said the following, Germany's unforgivable crime before World War II was its attempt to loosen its economy out of the world trade system and to build up an, its own exchange system from which the world finance could not profit anymore. We butchered the wrong pig, unquote. Yeah, I love, I love that quote. I guess everybody here knows that uh, the Germans were touching the third rail of global finance when they traded locomotives and technology for Argentine beef, didn't, didn't use any of the basket of currencies in that trade from what I've been able to glean. You know, that's, that's what the war was about. Even, even JFK made allusions to this uh, in the course of his lifetime in his political career. It's amazing uh, that, that he, he didn't get, uh, uh, you know, uh, scalded off for saying that but he he said some very uh temperate things about uh, the german government and adolf hitler and the squeeze that the the bankers were putting on germany during the course of his uh, his political career absolutely and dale do you find it uh, any what uh, questionable or any you think it was just an accident that j that at uh JFK's first address to the press corps, he mentioned the fact that Karl Marx wrote for the New York Tribune and produced more articles for the New York Tribune than any other writer. Now, I missed the beginning of your question, uh, Mike. We've discussed Marx's uh, relationship with the New York Times, but you said something about does it surprise you, and I lost and I lost well, contact. Well. Uh, JFK, in his first address to the press corps, brought up the fact that Karl Marx had written more articles for the New York Tribune than any other uh, columnist. Uh, yeah, New York Tribune, that's right. Now, yeah, uh, that's... Uh, go ahead. You think that was an accidental phrase? Or was his timing just bad? Uh I don't I don't know what motivated him, but it uh, you know, I can I can hear his father's politics, uh, Joe, old man Joe coming through in that statement. Well, let's not forget that uh, within four months of being inaugurated president, uh, he made a speech where he uh, warned us against secret societies. Uh, 
Right, the American mm-hmm. University speech. Yeah, yes. I got that. I got a phrase from that engraved on my Glock 33. By the way, <laughs> a gentleman, if I might. Yes, sir. Hey, DW, yes, sir. welcome. Yes, sir. Oh, you, you you stirred me up. You guys stirred me up. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> uh, we're in for it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Uh, the uh, here, here's a question for you: Can can a people really be your enemy if you fund that enemy? Can your enemy really be your enemy if you fund that enemy? Ooh. And that that's the question. Of course, it's a rhetorical. And the simple fact of the matter was, was that through uh, Hallmar Schacht, Hitler's Hitler's finance man, uh, he was funded through the United States and uh, Britain through the, um, the funding agents in the United States, which basically is the Federal Reserve. And uh, and its agents, and through the Bank of uh, the Bank of England, and this is uh, mostly done through the creation of the Bank of International Settlement, which 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 was the uh, the first president of the Bank of International Settlement in Switzerland, which is for always a neutral nation. How about that? Um, is the first president operating director of the Bank of International Settlement is Montague Norman. And so, um, and the, the loaning or the, the power institution that's funding Hitler is from Europe is also associated with Brown Brother, Brown Brothers Harriman. Prescott Bush. Uh, and this is the and Brown Brother. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, no question about it, Mike. And so Brown Brothers Harriman is a composition of European or British uh, white shoe boy banking and East Coast white shoe boy banking. And uh, they're 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 using the Dawes plan in 1924 to overcome the reparation so that they can fund, facilitate, and build up the, uh, the German uh, war machine or industrial machine. We'll just call it the industrial machine long before Hitler's on the scene here, okay? <laughs> and and well, then, don't, uh, you know... Don't, don't forget yeah. the uh, Dulles brothers. Uh, don't forget their well, involvement no. in this entire scheme as well. Oh, oh, absolutely not. That's that's their 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 live action role players. They're doing their part, uh, and and of course uh, in in World War before for the build up to World War uh, well the Bolshevik Revolution, you you have the United States and the and the Bank of England funding the Bolsheviks, and then through the Cold War. You have the United States and the Bank of England funding the Cold War. You were never any. You were never ever in any danger of thermonuclear war. I'm sorry, boys and girls. 
it was all a ruse. So, well, let's not forget John anyway. McCain's involvement with financing Al Nusra, Al Qaeda, and who else? Uh, ISIS is ISIS. Yes, ISIS is ISIS. You got yeah. that exactly right. Yeah. Well, yes, your Arafat was on the payroll for decades. Well, let's not uh, forget. Let's go back to uh, uh, the Jimmy Carter uh, administration and Zbigniew Brzezinski and Robert Gates, who became Secretary of Defense under Mr. Bush, George W. Uh, let's not forget their financing of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1978 to the tune of $500 million U.S. taxpayer dollars. I, I think you can bring it all back to old Lady Rothschild, who said, if there's going to be war, my sons will decide that. And they still are. Don't you guys find it ironic that Adolf Hitler, in his speech declaring war on the United States, effectively was trying to do what we were trying to do in the first hour of the program? By 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 informing his audience that in reality the form of government in the United States is three or four hundred industrialists and bankers, and not Great. the duly elected officials of the government. Well, very much so. Uh, my only really uh, contention that I really get upset about uh, Adolf Hitler is his embracing on page 576 of his uh, wonderful work, <laughs> uh, Mein Kampf, uh, where he uh, praised Abraham Lincoln. That, <laughs> that, that kind of did it for me. Well, uh, here's a question for you. With all the, <clears throat> with all of our understanding of the the uh, disingenuous history that's been presented to us uh, do we do we really do we really want to believe that the rise of adolf hitler was an organic event or, or was it a synthetic event my, well, w, let me my, see. my guess go ahead my guess w is that it was anything but organic i mean it's a pretty well known that uh, the, the Rothschild brothers gave uh, Hitler a cash award on the on the advent of his uh, birth there, you know, his birthday uh, when he was in Landsberg prison. And, uh, they, you know, the guys flying around in state-of-the-art aircraft and doing radio shows, uh, radio uh, presentations, and all kinds of cutting-edge stuff. Where did all that money come from, you know, the... Of course, the German industrialists all tied up with the bankers uh, were American money flowing into British money flowing into his uh, cause. The, I think the question that lingers in my mind was uh, what, what did you know? He obviously knew who uh, was run, who was running the planet. And was he going to try to play them or was he? operating as an asset and there's evidence operating entirely as an asset because they de they viewed him as an asset there's no question just as they viewed uh, um, Lenin uh, as an asset uh, 
did did he double cross them and have a, have his own agenda and think that he could could pull that agenda off? That's the question well, that lingers let, in my mind. Let me let me let me respond to your question with a question. Um, after after the ostensible end of World War II, what military intelligence system overtook control of the uh, intelligence systems of the world? CIA? Uh, no, wait a minute, Jim. you got to yep. remember the acronym. The acronym has to be correct. That's yeah. the Christians in Action. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we could say the OSS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you had you had the um, the head of uh, a, you had the head of uh, East uh, um, Germany's Eastern Front, the intelligence officer, running uh, intelligence operations all over Europe <clears throat> for um, the CIA. I, I uh, you had. Uh, the importation or the reassimilation of all the German, uh, <clears throat> you know, operatives, didn't you? That came to the United States and informed the rest of the world on how to operate uh, intelligence. You had the psychological operations. I have proposed to you that uh, this is, uh, <clears throat> you know, just how do I say this, Mike? Uh, uh, trying to make distinctions between the the Nazi intelligence and military machine and monetary industrial machine and making it a separate entity um, is what confuses people. It's it's a it's a blended synthetic organization. The Nazis did not lose the war. Okay. I'm confused about Stencible. Go ahead, Brent. I'm sorry. That was Robert. Oh, Robert. I'm confused. I'm confused with Ostensible. <laughs> Get Robert a dictionary. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, Robert. You're going to have to look that one up, buddy. <laughs> uh, DW, DW, you prompted uh, a question in my mind. Let me yeah. ask you the question. When you talked about the organic rise of Adolf Hitler, was the rise of Richard Nixon, Dwight David Eisenhower, uh, Bill Rockefeller, Clinton, Obama, were those organic in American history or was the bankers behind all of those as well? And we could also include Mr. Trump in that. Well, uh, they're only organic if you think cow shit is organic. But no, no, they weren't. Those were all synthetic. <clears throat> Those were all. Like you said earlier, there's nothing coincident coincidental in politics. Uh, they would they would never allow something uh, organic to ever take place. And this is part of the hopium that keeps drawing. Uh, uh, Republican-minded people into the Republican trap is that they keep thinking that there's some kind of or something organic that rises from the people, which is uh, uh, <laughs> you know that's just delusion, you know. Uh, you know. 
One thing about Hitler that I know for a fact is he made such very many outrageously poor tactical errors. Um, a case in point would be D-Day. Um, Rommel was trying to get him to bring up his tank divisions closer to the beaches. He would not. He liked Rommel, so he gave him a few tanks, and they did a hell of a lot of damage. Um, and there really were no decent German troops. They were all the recycles from the war in the East. M many of them weren't even German. Um, on Omaha Beach, the, 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 the Americans unfortunately met a real group of Germans that their intelligence didn't know was either, even in the theater, and that's why such damage was done there. And if there would have been mobile units, they would have been stopped completely. Yeah, well, he, he, let, he let the British go at Dunkirk, and he could have ended it there. Okay, so that was, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> well, that, it, that, <laughs> Are we he, off track? He, he, allowed, he allowed... Yeah, but it's an interesting, depart, you know, area of discussion and, and what what who was adolf hitler what was what were his motives what were who who put him in power the whole thing is is pretty central to trying to get a hold of uh make some kind of reality model about the powers that run the planet <coughs> well uh the, the, the africa Corps was left high and dry unnecessarily uh, long after uh, you know it was sacrificed but most importantly in the main the main uh, theater of the war, which was the Eastern Front with the Russians, Hitler forbade retrograde movements, uh, tactical uh, retreats, uh, again and again, that created just absolute havoc. And the, his military yeah. experts, many of them fell by the wayside trying to persuade him to stop doing that. And he was recalcitrant. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity with the guy. It's it's a tough one to puzzle out. <clears throat> well, just just real briefly, and I'll I'll step away here a little bit. But I just want to put this out here for food for thought, because it goes to this idea of organic and synthetic. Um, if Adolf Hitler, let's let's presume he was organic. Okay, we'll just go along with the storyline. He was organic. And by virtue of his policies and actions and what he did, he uh, facilitated the Zionist objectives of moving Jews out of Europe, creation of Israel, and the legacy that goes forward and we live with to this day. So if, if Adolf Hitler hadn't come along, they would have had to have created one to accomplish everything they've had to do. So there's, <clears throat> am, I, am I making myself clear there? If anybody facilitated the objectives of a Zionist policies and objectives, intended or not, I don't, I can't speak to that. I don't want to make Mermad, <laughs> okay? But if anybody facilitated the outcomes and objectives of the Zionist politics, which is the Republican Democrat parties here, it was Adolf Hitler. 
I couldn't agree he just more. Burned, can, if, he wanted them out of the if country. You have, if you have people living, say, in nice estates along the Danube River in Hungary, uh, uh, perfect weather and you know just delightful circumstances. You live in the best part of the world. You know, nicest place in the world is which pretty much Central Europe. Uh, how do you drive people in that situation into a desert uh, wasteland? How, how in the heck do you manage that? You put them in FEMA camps. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's my understanding that, that they went into a camp prior to the constant, so-called concentration camps for three weeks and were vetted by the Zionists to see if they had the guts to listen to the murderous crap that they had to do in Palestine if they were sent there. If they had the cheese to do that, they got to go there versus to one of the work camps. So that was a three-week boot camp. Before. <laughs> Nothing would surprise me. No, but the, oh, the, guilt, just... the guilt that's been laid on what western civilization vis-a-vis the holocaust so-called uh you know it's a blank check and it's still paying it's going to be the end of us all uh that's my that's my opinion yep i'm going to jump in here real quick mike uh, before we run out of time why don't you give everybody information about the uh, your websites and the uh uh, Facebook page and telegram channels and radio shows and all that good stuff. All right, Jim. Uh, so far, I have gotten my uh, website up at uh, rebelmadman.org. I'm beginning to post articles there. I have been busy for the past couple of weeks trying to transcribe uh, the uh, Sentinel essays, and I have been sending those out. Uh, have you been getting yours, Jim? Yes, I have. Thank you very much. So I'm trying to get those transcribed as much as possible. I uh, uh, have also been trying to do some research on a subject that is really interesting to me that I'm trying to bring forward. I can never find enough time for that. And, uh, of course, uh, I will also try to post all of this information to my Telegram channels as well. And that is Rebel Madman and uh, Constitutional Fraud. So uh, and then tomorrow at uh, 12 noon uh, Eastern, uh, my friend Cal Roberts and I will be doing a program called Dare to Think Out Loud. And we will be discussing that uh, probably one of the greatest military minds in the history of the world. And that would be Thomas Jonathan Jackson, better known as Stonewall. Stonewall. And we will be going into why, uh, you know, the South uh, should have listened to him. Robert E. Lee should have listened to him. Uh, Jefferson Davis should have listened to him. But they didn't listen to Stonewall because he was not a member of the wealthy aristocracy. And yet uh, the South supported people like Braxton Bragg, who was a stark, raven, mad idiot. And he, uh, Bragg, uh, probably in my mind, did more to lose the uh, our second war for independence than uh, anybody on the North did to win it. Uh, 
So we will be going into that. And then on Sunday evening, I'm going to be teaming up with the uh, uh, fellow there from Alabama, uh, Daryl Wayne, and uh, we will be jumping into uh, a pool of who knows what. Which is always fun. <laughs> yes, it is. So, uh, thank you, Jim, for allowing me to uh, talk about those, and uh, uh, I, I, I truly appreciate it. I would, uh, and I'm going to dedicate tomorrow's program to a childhood friend of mine who passed away two days ago, uh, Mike Dillingham from down in Bossier City, Louisiana. A young man that I met at the age of six, and we did an awful lot of fun things together. So I'm going to dedicate the program tomorrow to him. Very nice. Hmm. Speaking of dedicating programs, I have yet to hear anything back from Leon. Um, for those that are regulars, uh, Leon's been on the board with us for quite some time. And uh, a couple of weeks ago... He was admitted to the hospital with um, COVID, and I think it was Wednesday night two weeks ago was the last text message I got from him, and he said his uh, oxygen levels were in the 70 range, and uh, he was mm -hmm. kind of saying his goodbyes, and I have not heard anything since, so I don't know if he was clairvoyant or what's going on. I've sent a couple of messages since then and been no response, so... Um, asking people to continue praying for Leon until we know what's going on there. And hey, Serge, do you know his last name? Oh, boy. I If I do, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I was just wondering, like, if you have, like, you could maybe look for obituaries in yeah, local good, paper or something. Good point. Um, let me, I've, I've gotten emails from him, but I don't know if it was email had his last name in it or not. Uh, I will dig into that and I'll let you know. And Mike, I heard a yes, quote in a movie, a movie the other day, an old movie, that was, if this be treason, let's make the most of it. Oh, Patrick Henry. Lovely. And it was Lovely. in Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucille Ball. And it was Henry oh. Ford, Henry Fonda saying it. Oh, my goodness. That is incredible. Uh, wow, I haven't heard that, but uh, yeah, those uh, uh, Patrick Henry doesn't get quoted too often past "Give me liberty or give me death," and then that is just a summary of uh, yeah, look at this great guy, but don't look at him too well because uh, he might turn your boat around. But thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> if this be treason, let's make the most of it. Wow, I love it. I did, too. <laughs> and, of course, you're familiar with uh, when he said that, right? Yeah, when they were getting ready to overthrow the Articles of Confederation and do the Constitution. That was a stamp act. He showed up as, uh, a, he showed up as a, uh, a, a guy in homespun clothes, uh, didn't have on his powdered wig, didn't have on his finery, arrived horseback instead of in a carriage. And uh, he stood up to speak against the uh, Stamp Act and the uh, 
President Edmund Pendleton kept yelling treason, treason, treason. And that's when he said, well, if this be treason, let's make the most of it. And he lit the spark that started the Revolutionary War. Yeah, those are... Hey, what happened, Dale? Did you fall into Salt Lake? No, just uh, just on the, just in receiving mode here, and uh, it's 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 fascinating to hear voices come on into the conversation uh, without any uh, you know uh, uh, fanfare or anything. It's just a very spontaneous and kind of a fun way of doing radio. Kind of new to me, so we have fun here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will say this by way of uh, by way of uh, something I heard last night about about COVID. Uh, I was interested. Actually, this conversation happened several days ago, but I was listening to another internet program, and uh, Joel Skousen, who is a uh, kind of a political guru out here to in this region. Uh, I find myself disagreeing. Pardon me. <laughs> no, I just said I wonder why. Yeah, well, I, I find myself uh, uh, disagreeing with him a lot, and uh, he he uh, used to come on to the radio station I worked on. I am acquainted with him, but in, in his politics isn't the point. Point is, he uh, came down with the with the dreaded monk, uh, the dreaded COVID, and uh, it really kicked his butt. And he claims that the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin didn't put a dent in it. He probably waited too long to employ them. But what it did help him was uh, uh, a product called Allison C. And I don't sell it or make any money from mentioning it, but it's a vitamin C and garlic preparation. And uh, old Joel says uh, it it basically saved his life. So for what it's worth. That's cool. Yeah, there's uh, Allison and C together are really good. Allison's from the garlic and obviously vitamin C, great stuff. Um, There's so many different things out there. One thing that we've had that works really well is turpentine. And uh, Mm. you get people uh, to actually put it down their throat, um, it it does the trick. But uh, (laughs) it doesn't taste so great, but it does the job. And... um, (laughs) You know, there are other things. Uh, one of the things that I've been finding has been really good and very simple to do is um, nebulized hydrogen peroxide with a chaser of uh, zinc, or not zinc, uh, uh, iodine. And uh, it's uh, hey. good stuff. Hey, Jim. Yes, sir. Uh not to scare scare people, I use a different term for turpentine. I, I call it the essence of pine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anything other than turpentine, you know, uh, pure wood spirits, you know, something like that. But, uh, you know, that's something you got to do because you mentioned turpentine. They go, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, look up the old-time remedies, man. It was good for what ailed you. But um, stuff works. And uh, there's so many different things out there, but uh, the nice one is the uh, uh, nebulized uh, hydrogen peroxide and, uh, and iodine. Uh, there's a lot of information showing that's been used for years and years and years for upper respiratory type things and just knocks the snot out of it all, including COVID. Um, 
So there's another one to think it. Yeah, you know, Doctor hey, uh, Mercola has a good paper on that. Yes, Lisa. You think uh, in Mary Poppins they were using turpentine? Uh, you know I would imagine, you know, a spoonful of sugar or a cubeful, one way or other. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Although it was never mentioned in the song, uh, it sure. I'll tell you what. When I when I ate those three sugar cubes uh, saturated with that stuff. Uh, I was glad the sugar was there. <laughs> I'll say that, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Good, good. You know, it's, it's that's one of the things I was thinking of when I was taking it. <laughs> so I sure hope this works. Now, <laughs> but uh, anyway, just something to think about. And um, the paper that I was just talking about by Mercola. I, I believe I put it on the Telegram channel a day or two ago, so it should be up there. You may have to scroll a little bit to find it, but it's a downloadable PDF and uh, very, very good information. So let's see here. Oh, we're down to good grief. Just a couple more minutes. Uh, last time, last parting shots, uh, Dale or Mike, uh, anything else you want to get in here before we run out of time or DW? Uh, go ahead, Dale. Well, I think uh, I, I think I've pretty much said my piece here today. I've had a lot of latitude to do so. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, just the opportunity to be to be a part of this, and uh, I hope uh, I hope it can happen again. Uh, I, I get I get kind of the willies thinking about what happens when us old fogies are gone, though, and uh, I guess yeah, I guess that's up to God, up to God. But uh, the for example the the kind of stuff that Mike has at his fingertips, I think the casual listener might think, oh, well, you know, that's really interesting. Do you, do you know, but do you realize, casual listener, that uh, there, there might be, a, you know, a handful of people on the planet that can do that? And uh, so, not to get too morbid, but uh, I, I wish that we could, we, ha we are millionaires and are well-landed class would just do a little bit to uh, help logistically in the archiving uh, the, uh, of, of information like that. Somebody like Mike should be able to write and record, uh, you know, without concern for any logistics if we had an intelligent, uh, uh, self-interest, enlightened, self-interested society. But people like him and our friend Will Gregg, who passed away, and a couple of others, um, get get very very little attention or support in this society, and and we're going to win the Darwin Award for it, I think, in the end. Here, here. Good point. Good point. Ugh. DW, you got anything you want to throw in? I uh, I just want to echo what uh, Dale just said. Uh, uh, you know, if there's any way to support mike's work and and uh he's offering some papers and contribute to him for all of his uh, his efforts and uh we all do what little bits we can here and there but you know the uh many many hands will lift a lift the load and take maybe take some of the weight off of mike in some ways and so i just uh i i think that's almost a duty so yeah Good point. 
And anybody that wants to do that, I've got uh, Mike's information on how you can get it to him. And uh, just contact me and we will get that to you. And I'm going to be uh, cutting a check here myself for all the good work that he's done. And uh, we encourage everybody else who has the means to do so. Uh, we are pretty much out of time, however, and I want to thank everybody for being here today. It's been an absolutely wonderful day as usual. And again, I thank Robert for hooking us up so long ago, and it's been great ever since. Mike, Dale, DW, everybody else, thanks so much for being here. I wish you all a wonderful new year. And we will be back live on Monday in 2022, the next year of COVIDiacy. So take care, God bless, and we will see you all soon. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Happy guys. New Year. Bye.